The more the world changes, the more we find comfort in the things that never change. Never change. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin on demand on the Blaze Radio Network. Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip that started from this tropic point aboard this tiny ship. I am so very happy that you've tuned in to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, reveals how the world really works. Thanks for being part of the show, and thanks for any occasions on which you have shared the show with other people, encouraged others to listen as well. And I appreciate that very much indeed, and I think all our listeners do, because uh, the more people who are listening, the more resources come to bear on the quality of the show. Uh, at least I very much hope that's how it works, and that's how I intend it to work. But I appreciate you being here, and uh, we're going to take a look at yet another example of the difference between the left and the right. Or if you like, a difference between the way elitists, the intelligentsia, people who work in government, people who work in academia, people who work in entertainment, and how they think compared with the way ordinary people think. Uh, people who are not busy shaping the opinions of the world, are not busy trying to tell other people how to live. And here's one of the huge distinctions. The question is one of uh, patriotism. How do people feel about their country, right? Whether, whether you live in, uh, in Pakistan or whether you live in the United States of America or whether you live in uh, United Kingdom, if you live in England or Scotland or whether you live in France or Italy or Norway or Germany – uh, or whether you live in uh, Zimbabwe or Nigeria, it just doesn't make any difference. Bottom line is, patriotism, feeling a sense of loyalty to your country and your countrymen, the people with whom you share a nationality, uh, is completely losing popularity. Elitists have replaced that loyalty to your country and to your countrymen They've replaced it with an attachment to large abstractions such as humanity, the planet, the environment, that's right, uh, the government, or if you're in Europe, the European Union. And so primary loyalty in, among the left goes to large abstractions. As I said, you know, the planet or the government. But how about for folks on the right side of things? Their primary loyalty is to family and to country. And for many who are religious Jews and Christians, then it would probably be to God and then to family uh, and then to country. Um, it's also possible that for many people... The loyalty is to God, okay, family, all right, and then your workplace, the people you work with, the people you do business with, 
the people who give you a salary check every two weeks. Uh, and then finally country. So country moves to fourth position uh, in that category, and that's fine. But my point is that on the right, primary loyalty goes to things that are closest to one, one's God, one's family, one's workplace, and ultimately one's country. People on the left start at the other end of the spectrum. Their loyalty is to the United Nations, the world, the climate, the environment, the government, right, or confederation of governments if it's the European Union. And if you really want to know what lies at the heart of the difference between those who voted in the United Kingdom to leave the European Union, those uh, quixotically known as Brexit, uh, and those who are so aggravated by that decision that they are overwhelmed by a deep, unshakable determination to undo the will of the people. And uh, Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister of England, is dealing with that right now. But bottom line, uh, loyalty is as it should be to the things closest to you. And then only afterwards reaching out in concentric circles like the ripples emanating from a pebble dropped in a pond, starting off with the things closest to you and then only afterwards reaching out to the things furthest. Do I care about the world? Yeah, in general abstract terms, but not nearly as much as I care about my children. And that is exactly the way that it ought to be. Now, why do I tell you this? Because the general belief on the left and among those who, let's be honest, are sadly winning the popular culture today in many countries, particularly in the United States, those basically winning the culture right now are those who view the family. By family, let me be very, very clear. A man married to a woman, deeply committed to one another, and the children that they conceive and bring into the world. Um, it goes without saying that... Uh, the adopted family is also very important. I'm just not talking about it right now. And uh, I'm also uh, making very clear that any attempts to conflate the adopted family together with a family where the children are the biological offspring of a married couple is incorrect. These are two different entities. Uh, thank God for people willing to adopt and, 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 and who have done so much for so many children. There's no question about it. And I just want to make sure that those of you listening who are either adopted children or adopted, adoptive parents, uh, you know that my regard for you knows no bounds. But that's not what I'm talking about today. What I'm talking about is the organic nuclear family, a man and a woman devoted to one another, a man and a woman who have deep and intimate relationships only with one another and who have brought children into the world to whom the two of them are devoted. That old-fashioned form of family is out of favor among those 
who sculpt the culture, the culture today, unfortunately. And so I thought it would be helpful to look at some very fundamental and unarguable facts. Unarguable facts? Well, because everything I'm quoting to you is actually from the uh, Health and Human Services. Okay? It's, it's from the people in government. And it's the Office of the Administration for Children and Families of the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. And what I've been reading is a study that's – oh, it's, it's a good few years old. Um, it's called the National Incidence Study of Child Abuse and Neglect. And it studies the years, five years, from 2004 to 2009. And I went back to several earlier ones because they've been doing one of these, these about like once every decade. And, um, and I haven't seen um, the, the, the newest ones probably going to be out in about a year or two. But this is the most recent one that I could find. And what are they talking about? Um, they're coming up with absolutely incontrovertible evidence that children who live with a mother and a father from whom they are biologically descended and who are married to one another are at a tiny, 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 imperceptibly small and microscopic risk of danger and child abuse. The overwhelming majority of the cases, overwhelming majority of the cases that um, that send shivers down your spine when you see them on television or you read about them in the newspaper are instances of children who are living with a mother and a boyfriend of the mother. Now, various national newspapers uh, made the decision years ago already to refer to such families as married couples, and they rationalize this on the basis of common law marriage. Uh, yeah, they're married couples, and they would even refer to the child, um, uh, the, the man living there, as the father. That's right. That's what they did. And it isn't absolutely correct. And so you'll see sad and horrible reports. I mean, I'm just pulling out a few of these, but they're there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them uh, in a list up on the screen in front of me, and, and it's tragic, and I don't want to send um, thrills of horror down your spine, and, and I don't want to be uh, provocative or sensationalist here, but um, Tayari Smith of New Orleans shot and killed his two-year-old son. Wow, really? And um, uh, Samuel Harris uh, threw onto the floor and beat up his four-month-old son, Aidan Caro. And uh, in South Carolina, um, little five-month-old Joshua Dial was shaken by his mother's boyfriend in a manner so violent that the baby immediately lost consciousness, suffered severe brain trauma, and died soon thereafter, and so on and so forth. Um, now, the question we ask ourselves is, and I'm not going to read any more, but you know what I'm referring to. You've seen them, and, and they're horrible. Uh, little children um, damaged, injured, and 
very often killed by their fathers. And you say to yourself, these horrible instances of fatal child abuse around the country, are they just random examples of the tragic dark side of the human condition? Well, in case you thought that those kinds of horrible things can happen to anybody, they can happen to any family, and they do, no, it's not true, because this National Incident Study of Child Abuse makes something really, really very clear. Children living with a mother and her boyfriend are 11 times more likely to be damaged and abused than children living with their married, married biological parents. Children living with their mother and her boyfriend are six times more likely, I'm sorry, no, 11 times more likely, like I said, um, six times more likely to be damaged um, than children living with their biological unmarried parents. In other words, the most dangerous place for a child in America to find himself is any home, in a home that includes an unrelated male boyfriend of the child's mother. That is the most dangerous. So you hear all these uh, cries for the children. We care about the children. Oh, we've got to stop secondhand smoke uh, because of the children. And, and so it goes, because of the children. But the one most dangerous place for a child is with a single mom and her boyfriend. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Children living with a biological father and mother don't do much better if the parents aren't married, if they're just living together. What do you say to that? And this, the beautiful thing is, this is not your rabbi quoting some religious study with a bias towards family. No! This is from the American, from the United States government's department of Health and Human Services. This is the Office of Administration of Children and Families, and they are the ones that say this explicitly, that children living with mom and her boyfriend are, live, are the most vulnerable and most likely to be hurt or killed children in America. If they are living with mom and her boyfriend, who is the biological father of the child, also, just about, it's, it's imperceptibly different from the earlier. It's, it's, it's not like it's 10 times more dangerous, it's like 10.8, whereas it's 11 the other way. Bottom line is, the safest place for a child in America is with a mother and a father who are married to one another and who are the progenitors of that child. This could hardly be more clear. Isn't it shocking? I mean, did, did you know that it was quite as, as profound a difference as that? It's unbelievable, quite unbelievable. And you would think that, therefore, politicians who really care about the children, you'd think that they would devote considerable energy to doing everything they can to make it more likely 
for a man and a woman to be married and to raise their children. And that could be done by policy that could be changed by changes to the tax code. It could be done by changes to the welfare system and so on and so forth. But the reality is that you must conclude, if you are a rational person, there really is no simpler explanation for what our eyes see around us than that the left, the Democratic Party, politicians, whether it's in Germany or Norway, United Kingdom, America, anywhere else, politicians care much more about their socialist, secular, fundamentalist policies than they actually do about the children. Because if they really, really cared about the children, they simply could not miss the evidence produced by their own officers from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. They couldn't miss the fact that children who get injured and killed overwhelmingly are children who are living in an unmarried household. They're living in a household of mom and her boyfriend, who may or may not, in most cases, is not the father of the child, but even if he is, makes very little difference. And so if politicians really cared about children, and if they really like to do something about the horrible epidemic of little children being hurt and killed, well, then wouldn't they do something to protect and preserve marriage, wouldn't you think? right? But that's not exactly how it works, because the way the world works is that politicians care about many, many, many things before they start caring about the people they represent and the children in their constituencies. And why do I tell you all this? <clears throat> because there is a, a case that recently uh, occurred, and Again, although this occurred in October of 2019, um, it doesn't matter because this could have happened at any time. It probably has happened at any time. And it certainly is something that, although he didn't, Shakespeare could have written about. And it's something the Bible could have spoken about. Oh, wait, it did. But more on that in a few minutes. But first of all, let's look at the story. The story is about a woman, Dr. Anne Georgiulis, and uh, she uh, has a, a little boy, um, and she has two little boys, and she was in court fighting for custody with her ex-husband, a man called Jeffrey Younger. This was in, in Texas. And uh, what, uh, what happened was that she is trying to raise one of these little boys as a little girl. And she is working on having the little boy chemically castrated. He's tiny. I mean, he's seven years old, for heaven's sake. And she uh, has decided that he wants to be a girl. And the father has been trying to get joint custody or even complete custody to prevent his son from being uh, damaged by uh, chemical castration and by hormone treatments at seven years old in order for him to be a girl, right, which you understand he never will be. Um, so in, when, when this little boy is living with mommy, uh, Dr. Anne Georgiulis calls the boy Luna, 
and the jury gave her full authority to go ahead and start him on puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones uh, that will eventually chemically castrate him. Incredible. Um, so uh, so there, there we've got it. And that the jury rules that it's so important that this little boy can be turned into a girl that the father is deprived of all custody rights. Now, um, something that has just changed, and, and this is like breaking news of the time that I'm recording this show, um, a judge overruled the jury, and in this particular case, uh, Jeffrey Younger, the father uh, who's trying to protect his seven-year-old son James from chemical castration via the gender transition, he ruled today that the parents will have joint conservatorship over James, which includes making joint medical decisions for the child. So for the moment, Anne George Olas is prevented from doing this. But the judge had to overrule the jury, who were perfectly willing to let this woman go ahead and... Uh, and uh, turn her little boy into a very damaged um, and mutilated um, little boy, not a little girl at all. Um, the judge, who happens to be the 255th district, also put a gag order on both parents. So I don't know that we're going to find out a whole lot more about this. They're not allowed to speak to the press. And uh, also the father is not even required to pay attorney fees. So... Uh, we don't know exactly how this is all going to play itself out, but um, 11 out of 12 jurors, by the way, 11 out of 12 uh, declared, ag ruled against um, St uh, uh, Jeffrey Younger and granted managing conservatorship to the mother. Now, here is the best part of this, and this is all breaking news. Um, the oh, before I tell you that, let me let me tell you something else that um, that explains a lot of what's going on here. And this I just know from experience and uh, and in talking to you know, thousands of people over the years in in these areas and these topics. Um, here you've got a little boy who's up to now seven years old. He's been shuttling between mom and dad. Dad sees him as the boy that he is. Mom calls him Luna, dresses him in girls' clothing, and uh, he spends some time there and some time by dad. Now, I don't know what the seven-year-old boy really thinks or feels. I don't know him, not spoken to him. It's not my field. I don't know that, but here's what I do know. And I know this because this is standard operating procedure for every child of divorce. And uh, please, folks, any of you who know what I'm talking about, who've experienced this, would you please, and I won't betray your identity at all, but would you please go to my website and please um, just let me know that you had experiences like this, or alternatively, maybe you didn't. But here's what happens. Uh, because these little children have to walk a tightrope, I mean, they know how mom and dad feel about each other. They're not stupid. They understand the divorce. They can see subtle signals, sometimes less subtle, that each parent gives off about the other. And so they've learned for survival 
that when you're with dad, you try and please dad. When you're with mom, you try and please mom. In the case of, of little James Young, uh, what's very, very younger, what's very clear is that when he's with dad, he probably is, behaves like a boy because he knows that's what his dad expects him to be. And I know equally likely when he's with mom, he probably plays along because little children want peace and stability, for heaven's sake. That's not a lot to ask. That's all they want. They just want mom and dad not to be fighting and not to be screaming at each other. That's all they want. It's not asking for a lot. And they don't want tension. And they don't want mom interrogating them about what did dad say or what did dad do or why are you doing this? Is this because of your father? They don't want any of that sort of stuff. And so I'm perfectly certain that little James Younger, when he's with mom, he probably plays along with her desire for him to be. What does a seven-year-old kid care? What he cares about is peace and tranquility, please, some stability. And so he probably plays along. And, and so mom is reinforced in her conviction that he has to be a girl. And away it goes. Now, here is perhaps the best part of it. The best part of the story that's brand new is that um, uh, Dr. Anne Georgiulis' mom is not actually the twin's biological mom. Isn't that something? She used somebody else's egg that was fertilized with Mr. Younger's sperm, and the result of that, of that uh, artificial fertilization process, was apparently a double embryo producing twins, as it turns out, and um, and then she uh, gestated those children till birth, or, or those that embryo, whatever it is. I'm not sure what the technical term is, but uh, there it is. So she is not biologically their mom. And this makes perfect sense, because looking at the study that I've just been talking to you about, the National Incident Study of Child Abuse and Neglect from 2004 to 2009, uh, conducted by Health and Human Services, uh, looking at that, they make the point, and it's incontrovertible, uh, the evidence is literally inescapable, that the behavior of a a man or a woman towards the child, if they are biologically related, is much, much better than if they're not. And uh, obviously, if they're married, that's, that's absolutely crucial, needless to say. So it turns out that this whole struggle between a biological father and his ex-wife, who wants to mutilate and damage this little boy, is not between a father and a mother of the child. It's between the father of a child and a woman who's not biologically related to that child. And ladies and gentlemen, it does make a difference. How do I know? <laughs> well, I will tell you that uh, because I did tell you that this is such a basic story about the human condition that if it's not in Shakespeare, it should be. And if it's not in the Bible, it should. But wait, it is in the Bible. And I'm going to tell you and show you exactly where about it is. The Bible, you say? Yes, absolutely. 
And I'm reminding you of the story about two women who came before the wise King Solomon, each claiming that the child they brought was theirs. Uh, the full story, the, the two women uh, gave birth. They were in, I guess, whatever was passed for a birth center in those days. And during the night, one of the babies died. And um, apparently one of the women replaced uh, her child with a dead child. And, um, and, and they both, and so they, one woman came falsely claiming that the living child was hers. The other woman um, said, look, um, I, I, I found the dead child in my bed this morning, but it wasn't my child. I, I know what my child looks like. And this isn't he. And so what do we do? And King Solomon famously said, uh, bring me a sword and I will cut the child into the living child in two. You'll each go home with half a child. At which point one of the women said, yes, yes, do that. Right. Go, go ahead. Yeah. And the other woman said, no, let her have the child. And King Solomon took the baby and gave it to the woman who said, no, let him, let her have the child. Why? Because King Solomon knew what the United States Department of Health and Human Services recently discovered, which is that women feel differently towards their own biological children than they do to others. Differently. A woman feels differently towards a child that is her biological offspring than she does to any other child. Uh, again, I understand, and I have witnessed and I know some amazing adoptive mothers who literally those lucky, lucky children could not have had a better mother than their adoptive children. And in most of the cases I know of, the children know it and continue um, exhibiting deep love and filial devotion to their moms. But remember what I said. I didn't say one is good or one is bad. I said different. Um, the way a woman feels towards a child that is her flesh and blood is different. And King Solomon knew that. And I am going to uh, tell you a little bit more, just a, a few interesting things about that for those of you who'd like to uh, listen to it and who would like to know about it. Uh, first book of Kings, chapter 3. First book of Kings, chapter 3, verse 16. Uh, then uh, these two women came, and by the way, my English translation, uh, which is a pretty standard English translation, says the two were harlots. Uh, that is not correct. Uh, in the Hebrew, the Hebrew word zonah doesn't necessarily mean what we think of today as a harlot or as a, or as a prostitute. Um, but it does explain why dad doesn't seem to have been around. Okay? And we, we've, we've, we get the picture. Enough on that for now. This is a family show. But uh, two women came before the king. One woman said, uh, uh, this woman and I were in one house. Uh, we both had children. And uh, we were there together, just us, just the two of us in this house. And that woman's child died in the night, and uh, she might have smothered him. And she 
got up and switched children with me. And while I was asleep, she took my child to her bed and laid her dead child on my bosom. When I got up in the morning to give my child milk, I saw the child was dead, and I looked closely, and I said, hey, it wasn't my son. Uh, the other woman said, no, 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 the living child is my son. The dead one is hers. And, um, and they argued, and they, they spoke to the king in this fashion. And so the king said, bring me a sword. And verse 24, they brought a sword before the king. And the king said, cut the living child in two. Give half to the one woman and other half to the other woman. And, um, and now we come to a very interesting verse. Verse 26 is, Vatomer ha'isha asher hachai el ha'melech. And the woman, who was the mother of the living child, said to the king, because she felt this irrepressible surge of compassion for her child, Vatomer, and she said, Please, my lord, O king, give her the child. Let her have this child, but don't kill him. Don't cut him in two. And the other woman says, uh, No, let it not be, let the child not be yours or mine. Let's cut the child in two. Go ahead, do, do it. Um, then uh, verse 27, this is the critical verse, Vayan HaMelech, and the king replied, Vayomer, and he said, He said, give her the living child, but don't kill the child. He imor, she is its mother. Now, here's where ancient Jewish wisdom comes in. I'm talking about First book of Kings, chapter 3, verse 27. All of this is, is understandable, right? It's factual. The king says, give her the living child. Do not kill the child. Because, okay. Why? Because in the previous verse, one woman said, you know what? Please don't kill the child. Let her have it. The other woman said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Cut the child in two. We, both of us shouldn't have it. And then Solomon makes the ruling. And he says, look. In his mind, he says, if one of them feels that way about the child, then she is the one who's going to get the child. Now, what we don't know is that Solomon really say to himself, well, she's got to be the mother because that demonstration of maternal compassion can only come from biological connection, so she must be the mother. Maybe, maybe Solomon simply said, you know what? It's clear to me who'd be the better mother. Right now, I have to rule in the interests of this child. There's no way I am mere human being, right? We don't have DNA tests yet. I don't know who really is the mother. So I'm going to give it to this woman because for no other reason, she sounds like she'd be a better mother. For heaven's sake, the other woman said, yeah, 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 cut the baby in half, kill it. That way, neither of us will have him. So obviously, the other woman's going to be a better mom. But the verse 27 ends with the words, she is its mother. But what you may not be aware, unless you already have me as your rabbi and you've read all the thought tools of the last few years, uh, you may not know that in the Hebrew text, the text finishes with the words, give her the living child, do not kill it. And there's a break in the text, and then the next two words are not uttered by Solomon. The words are, she is its mother. 
who at that point who's the only source of information who's the mother god himself and so ancient jewish wisdom says that it was solomon who made the ruling and he said these words um, do not give do not kill the child give it to this woman period and then a divine voice said you got it right pal she is the mother because Solomon couldn't possibly have known who the mother is. He could have known who was likely to be a better mother, but in terms of the biological mother, he can make a guess, but the closing two words of that sentence, she is, two words in Hebrew, she is the mother, now that can be uttered only by God because only he would know. Anyway, beautiful, beautiful thing, and a direct spotlight on the uh, current events of the time. And that is really uh, so central, this understanding that family is at the core of everything. If somebody is raised outside of a family, it is very possible that that person is never, ever going to be able to love their country. They certainly will never know what it is to love a family. But if you are raised within a loving family and you grow up learning to love the family, then you are likely to be a more patriotic person as well. So it's not a surprise. It's not a surprise that in general, those people for whom in the United States of America, those people for whom the Star Spangled Banner brings a lump to the throat and tears to the eye generally happen to be religious, family-loving, normal Americans. But those who are talking about the freedom of expression to burn the flag and talking about saving the planet and talking about the United Nations, um, very possibly a whole lot of them, not that involved in deeply committed family life. In other words, it is very much in the interests of a government to stress the importance of family and to do everything possible to make it easy for men and women to marry and to remain committed to one another and to remain committed to the children they bring into the world. Really, really important for a government to do that. However, let it also be said that governments do not do that. Why? Well, this we've spoken about in uh, podcasts of the last few episodes because people who grow up in family, they love their country. They don't necessarily love their government. They don't necessarily love their political representative, but they love their country. They are also people who are more likely to be independent emotionally and economically of the government. They don't need the security of the government will take care of us. And they don't need the government taking money away from hardworking American families. Yes, it is families who pay most of the tax in America. Yes, families. And they don't need government to take money away from hardworking families to give it to them. Because people who grow up in families are confident and secure and independent emotionally, politically, 
and economically. And so, yes, I understand why venal politicians would much rather have weakened families and would much rather have no marriages. Oh, but then children are going to be battered and bruised and killed. Hey, you can't make an omelet without breaking a few eggs, as a famous communist called Lenin once said. Right? So um, they, they, they're obviously willing to live with us. It is no secret that the most dangerous place for a little kid is with a single mom. It's, not, it's no secret that child is more likely to have run-ins with the law, more likely to suffer poverty, and more likely to be bruised, injured, or killed. That's right. It's, it's as simple as that, right? A- am I pointing fingers at single... Oh, don't be silly, right? We're talking simple, true facts. And I, like you, refuse to have my information censored by the politically correct crowd. And I, ref- I refuse to self-censor myself when I say things that make leftist elitists feel uncomfortable. Yes, families are better for little children, and families are better for society. Families are better for a country. They really, really are. But of course, nobody really wants to hear that, do they? Now, if, if you are long-time happy warriors, if you're somebody who's been listening to the show for a while, who has read my books, has listened to our audio programs, such as, by the way, Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam, uh, which I'll tell you about in a little while. But uh, if, if you are a long-time happy warrior, then you might have known that I love thought experiments. What is a thought experiment? It is where we lay out an imaginary experiment, and we do it in such a way so as that certain things are unarguably uh, predictable. And then we can experiment with different outcomes. Um, the, the term uh, thought experiment, or in German, uh, was, I think, invented by Albert Einstein, but it doesn't matter. Uh, the point is, I really love thought experiments. So I invite you along on this thought experiment, all right? Needs a little imagination. And if you have any trouble conjuring up the pictures for this thought experiment, <laughs> all that means is you're watching too much screen time. You're watching too much television. You're watching too many YouTube videos or too many Netflix movies. Uh, that's all that it means, right? And whenever I say this, by the way, those of you who listen to this show on YouTube, um, always write in and on the comment section on the YouTube, on my YouTube channel, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, uh, every now and then somebody writes, well, you tell us we shouldn't be watching videos, and yet here we are, right here on YouTube, listening to you. Yeah, listening, not watching. And if I do put on YouTube a visual where I am speaking, nonetheless, I can assure you, there is nothing much to look at. I promise you, the value is what's coming through your ears, not what's coming through your eyes. Trust ears far more than you trust eyes. 
because the more you use your eyes for pictures and moving pictures, the less uh, use and exercise your imagination gets and the more atrophied your imagination gets, right? Like any muscle that doesn't get used, right? You don't use a certain muscle. People who are in bed for a long time with an illness, people who've been in space without gravity for a long time, muscles atrophy. Well, your muscle of imagination, I assure you, is no different. And if you don't read enough books and you watch too many moving pictures, even fiction books, by the way, are useful. But watching movies... No, because it stops you conjuring up the picture in your mind's eye. You're not using your imagination. Well, you say to me, what's the problem? So what if I don't have an Who needs an imagination? You do. If you are hoping to uh, conceive of a way of expanding your business, if you're thinking of a way of trying to write a new way of putting down a recipe, if you are looking to write a novel, if you are trying to improve things at your job so as that things go better, all of it depends on an imagination because you have to imagine something that isn't there. What you are basically saying is I want to put words down on a page in a way they've never been put down by anyone else before. For that, I need my imagination. I want to come up with a new business plan. I want to come up with a new app that no one's thought of. I want to think of a more efficient way of delivering a service to people. If you kill your imagination, please don't do that. Correct it immediately and start doing more reading, more getting more information in through your ears than through your eyes. But wait, Rabbi, when I read, I'm using my eyes. Yes, but it still processes through the ear side of the brain because what you're seeing is an abstraction. You're seeing a word and your brain now has to imaginatively construct the picture in your mind of what it really is, unlike what happens when you just look at a picture of Batman's car. But if you read the description of it, well, you've probably seen too many pictures of it anyway to exercise the imagination, so don't read Batman. And uh, so it is. That's, um, that is a very, very important aspect. So use your imagination and... Uh, uh, think of yourself as a high school teacher, and you've got a class of 50. You're responsible for 50 um, 17-year-olds, and uh, 25 of them are boys and 25 of them are girls because it's an absolutely balanced and equal school you teach at. And your job has been to take them on a little boating outing, right? A little boating outing. And uh, what happens is that you get shipwrecked and you land. This is all part of the thought experiment now. I hope your imagination is in overdrive. Uh, you land with your 50 young people on a remote and isolated desert island. And there's nobody else there. And there's nothing. There's no phones. There's no radios. There's nothing. You're a bit like Robinson Crusoe, okay? Just sit right back and you'll hear a tale, a tale of a fateful trip That started from this topic, boy, oh boy, this tiny ship The weather started getting rough, the 
time the ship was tossed If not for the courage of the fearless crew, the middle would be lost. The ship set round on the shore of this uncharted desert isle. It is the tale of our castaways, they're here for a long, long time. They'll have to make the best of things, it's an uphill climb. No motor car, not a single luxury. Like Robinson Crusoe, it's primitive as can be. And yes, just like Gilligan's Isle, that's right. You are now with uh, 25 17-year-old boys and 25 17-year-old girls. And you are now on this island. Your job is to keep them alive and healthy until the Coast Guard comes to pick you all up, which unfortunately is only going to be in two and a half years' time because of budget cutbacks caused by profligate government spending. The Coast Guard has to pile up its rescues, and at the moment they're running on a 30-month delay, and so it's only going to be two and a half years when uh, you will be rescued. And over the next 30 months, you've got to keep your 25, 17-year-old boys and your 25, 17-year-old girls alive on the island. What are your basics? What are you chiefly concerned? Well, right away, uh, you want to make sure that there's shelter. You want to make sure that there is um, um, food and that there's water. So you might well divide up all your... Uh, charges into groups. You might send some out to search for water, some to search for fruit, some to see if there's any wildlife that can be captured and slaughtered on the island. Uh, some of you, some of the, you'll send some of them to work to build a shelter. You might send some to try and catch fish. And um, everything's good. That night, everyone's exhausted, grateful to be alive. There's a rudimentary shelter on the beach. You've managed to get a fire going. You set some of them the job of lighting a fire, and they, they used friction on wood to do that. And believe it or not, uh, there's, a, there's a few pieces of fruit. There's a bit of fish. Everyone's grateful. Nobody, nobody's having a full meal, but at least you're all happy and grateful to be alive. Next day... You're about to send everyone off back on their missions when there's a big grumble. Some of them say, it's our turn. We want to go to the lagoon and catch fish. And others say, oh, we want to be, it was too hard to look for animals. We want to gather fruit. And you've got this big argument going. Well, you know the principles of specialization. You know that the guys who made mistakes trying to catch fish yesterday will make fewer mistakes and catch more fish today. And so on the one hand, you are you know the right thing is to send everybody back to the same tasks you assigned them yesterday but you're dealing with huge upset everybody's uncomfortable all right fine let's say you get through and solve this one your next problem is that you discover there are shirkers uh, there are a whole bunch of them who uh, as soon as they are out of sight of camp um, they quit work they play play games and they tell their comrades who are working hard, you carry on, look for fruit, you carry on, look for water, you carry on, uh, but don't, we'll beat you up if you tell the teacher that we're not working. Well, pretty soon becomes apparent to you that you got shirkers. So now you've got another problem. Do shirkers eat out of the communal pot or no work, no eat? How are you going to solve that one? You do see that I am putting you in the position of a creator of a society. You are now starting off human society. You can do whatever you like. You're in charge. You've just got to keep them alive for the next 24, uh, 30 months, two and a half years. That's all you've got to do. And um, how 
do you solve this problem? Well, I'm not going to go through it all now. I just want you to think about what you would do and see how difficult it is to, number one, know how the world really works and what you should be doing, but number two, how difficult it is to stick to that in the face of a complaining populace. Now, if you thought that I've been mean and nasty to you, giving you these tough tasks as the teacher, I'm actually going to up the ante and make it a little more difficult. Um, what are you going to do about male-female relations? Are you going to ban them all together? Are you going to... What are you going to do? It's your decision. And you've got to figure out a way of enforcing it, whatever you decide. Otherwise, there's total chaos. And um, let's say, I don't know what you can decide. You know. And let's say that uh, whatever you decide, um, uh, uh, two or three months into your stay on the island, when things are basically working out okay, people are, you, you kind of got it running. You've got problems, no question about it. What do you do with a criminal element? What do you do with a lazy element? But you've got another problem. One of the girls is pregnant. Now what are you going to do? She cannot work all the way, right? The first trimester, she's as nauseous as could be. Third trimester, she can has difficulty moving around. And um, she can't be expected to pull her weight as she was up till now. We're not talking about sitting in an office chair on a computer. We're talking about hard, grueling physical labor. And so now, who takes care of her, my friend? It's your decision. Is it the guy who impregnated her? And did you manage to find out who it was? Did you feel that it was important to find out who it was? What were the decisions you made? And knowing who he is, is he responsible for her? Or is everybody, is society responsible for her? Did you make clear, by the way, at the beginning, when you made your rules about male-female interaction, did you by that point make absolutely clear that if there is a birth, then the biological mother and biological father will be... Did you make all that clear? And um, if you did, how are you going to deal with widespread upset? And how are you going to deal with um, uh, people who go against your decree? These are not simple questions. As you think about this, and as you conduct my thought experiment, which I hope you'll do, and please uh, let me know your thoughts and, and your thinking, how, how to do it. Well, uh, best place would be the rabbi, no, the, the Facebook page. That would be a great place to let me know. Our Facebook page, uh, we've got a new page. It's called Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin on Facebook. Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Did you write that down? No. Here it comes one more time. Please write it down. Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin on Facebook. And um, I would love to have a conversation with you all there on exactly what you would do as the teacher of 25 17-year-old boys and 25 17-year-old girls. What would you do? And little by little, as this thought experiment plays out, you come to see that the only way to make this work is with a thing called marriage. You've got to make the relationship permanent. You've got to make the connection um, close to unbreakable. And you've got to establish clear lines of responsibility 
for offspring. I mean, that's straightforward, right? But you'd be amazed how hard it is to persuade many on the left of this very simple truth. Now, uh, the website, I've, I told you the Facebook page, Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. It's, uh, it's a place where I'd like to hold this conversation. Uh, but the website is rabbidaniellappin.com. And at the website, scoot over to the store because there is a wonderful sale on a truly magnificent audio teaching. It's a two-hour program. Uh, along with study group, a 16-page study guide. Now, you can either download this or you can get it mailed to you. It's called Clash of Destiny, Decoding the Secrets of Israel and Islam. And it's really valuable. It's really important in order to understand uh, why President Trump moved the embassy to Jerusalem. What, just a, a trick to, to please American Jews? Hardly, because he upset more Jews than he pleased with that, because more Jews are on the left in America than on the right. So uh, that wasn't the reason. Was there a real politic reason? Sure there was. And uh, although I don't speak about uh, the president or about American politics in that program, it's strictly a teaching program on the unchangeable realities of Israel and Islam. And uh, one of the things that I do point out, by the way, is that, uh, you know, it's, it's not an unusual sentiment to find among Jews um, a, a, a deep hatred for Germans because of the killing of millions of Jews in World War II, the Holocaust. Um, I don't share that, I have to tell you. Um, uh, many, many Jews refrain from buying German cars, for instance, and uh, I didn't share that. Uh, I, I, I enjoy being in Germany. I think flying on Lufthansa is a, uh, is a good experience, in my experience. Uh, and I bother and shock many of my fellow Jews in this. And the reason I feel the way I do on this is because I don't think that it was Germany that did the horrors of World War II. I think it was Nazism. And yes, uh, like a vile infestation, Germany caught this, um, this disease, this germ of Nazism, and, um, and ran with it. Are they the only people in the whole world who are capable of being infected with this germ? Not at all. Absolutely not. They were in the middle of the 20th century. But I... On that basis, my understanding of Nazism and its roots in the almost mythical but very real biblical race of Amalek. And you might remember in the Exodus from Egypt, in the book of Exodus, uh, it was Amalek who first attacked Israel from the rear right after the Exodus. Uh, Amalek is not a biological race any more than Judaism is a biological race. It's a spiritual race. And uh, the uh, credos and value system and beliefs of Amalekism are uh, in sync with those of Nazism. But um, at, at different epochs, at different times of history, those seeds of Amalek are distributed in different peoples of history. Uh, 
the book of Esther, for instance, speaks about uh, one of the Amalekites, by a man by the name of Haman, who naturally did what Amalekites do, which is try to annihilate and, and commit genocide to wipe out every single Jew off the face of the earth. That's what Amalekites do. Subsequently, we found that in the middle of the 20th century, that's what we saw Nazis want to do to such an extent that Hitler was willing to sacrifice strategic war goals so as not to disturb what he saw as the primary purpose, which was the annihilation of Jews. Uh, Adolf Eichmann was a, uh, a very crucial component. So if you're interested in, in recognizing and seeing how many of the biblical characteristics revealed about Amalek are found in Nazism, then you want to go ahead and use this opportunity to buy at a lovely sale price. It's a huge discount. It's a ridiculous price. I mean, it's truly not money you'd notice. Uh, and you would get a clash of destiny decoding the secrets of Islam. Uh, you might want to know, well, where is Amalek today? And the answer is easy. It's in Islam. I don't believe that the behavior we see in Islam today is that of the natural and organic Arab peoples. I don't believe that at all. I believe that uh, the Arab peoples uh, were dominated and forced into Islam by Muhammad, and that over a period of time, at a certain point in history, probably round about the second half of the 20th century, Islam caught the germ of Amalek. And sure enough, today, in spite of the fact that making peace with Israel would bring about untold benefits, I mean, let alone the four contiguous nations around Israel, but, um, but even Iran and uh, other countries, there'd be so many benefits that would flow if the Arabs would lay down their arms and declare peace with Israel. So many benefits, and yet the Amalekian root of Islam has to say, no, we're not interested in peace. We will continue paying a rich bounty on to the families of people who die killing Jews. We will continue our pay-to-slay program, and nothing will stop until we've managed to drive all the Israelis into the ocean. That's what they say. Hello, echoes of 1939. Uh, there it is. Well, again, uh, in just a few moments, I can tell you about it here. That's about all I can tell you here. But uh, the full two-hour program is waiting for you. You can download it instantly right now or as instantly as your Internet connection will allow. Um, or you can have it shipped to you very quickly as well. Just go to rabbidaniellappin.com and uh, go to the store. Look for Clash of Destiny, decoding the secrets of Israel and Islam. Uh, on sale right now. So please go ahead, do that, and uh, enjoy it. And by all means, share it with people. Let people get a clear insight into what is happening in the Middle East now and what the road to peace would actually look like. Well, that's about as far as we can go. The website, rabbidaniellappin.com.
Right, you got that, rabbidaniellappin.com. But the Facebook page is Friends of Rabbi Daniel and Susan Lappin. Uh, that's the Facebook page because it is where my wife and I do hang out. Uh, if you would uh, like to make sure you're on our mailing list for Thought Tools or for Susan's Musings or for one of our most popular weekly features, Ask the Rabbi, uh, just go to rabbidaniellappin.com, would you? and uh, take care of business there. That's as far as we can go for today, my friends. I really want to thank you very much indeed for listening. It is only because you are listening, and only because so many of you write in or send in comments and tell me that you're listening, that I'm able to use my imagination, and I can see you there in front of me, which makes my job of giving you this material a, a, an activity of joy and delight. So thanks for being part of it. Thanks for sharing the show and getting other people who are like-minded to share and join in. I very much appreciate it, and I wish you a week of very good times with your faith, with your friendships, with your family, and your finance, my famous four Fs. And uh, until next week, I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless. Spilling ancient solutions to modern problems in areas of family, faith, friendship, and finance. This is Rabbi Daniel Lappin On Demand on the Blaze Radio Network.